Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you, as always. And thank you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on a beautiful summer, sunny, smoky day. Maybe less so that, but fantastic. Good to have you here. As you find your place in the Bible, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 12 today. Uh, Sermon notes, I know, will be a help to you, essential for you as we move along here. I I want to just mention here, uh, boy, Willis and Esme, good to see you guys. This week, is it this week? Finally heading back to the Philippines. I know, we're counting on God's care for that. They've been trying to get back home to the Philippines where they live and serve and been trying that for, oh goodness, months. But uh, maybe this week and we'll trust and pray that this will be the last time we see you for a while. Well, you know we mean that in the best in the best possible way. But we wish you Godspeed as you hopefully head out and get back home this week. Uh, in our in our text this morning, I just want to give you a heads up about where we're going. Uh, last week, as we began <clears throat> Hebrews 12, we saw the analogy of of an athlete, a runner, and certainly we commented on that, the appropriateness of that analogy to life, because often it feels like we run a race and are weary. That analogy continues through through the text today and into next week as well. Running a race, running a race, and all that that all that, that entails. <clears throat> Years ago, there was one of those great moments in athletic history that involved running. And uh, I want to remember it with you because there are some ideas that connect to the text. If you follow the history of running, you remember perhaps the Miracle Mile, as it's often called, August 7th, 1954. Uh, Two of the great runners in the world at the time, Roger Bannister and John Landy. John Landy, an Australian, uh, Roger Bannister, a British guy. Both of them had run under four minutes in the mile and just the best in the world. You can still find this race on YouTube, by the way. Uh, It's a black and white grainy presentation with one of those old-time announcers. And he is now five yards ahead. It's fun. (laughs) You just have to watch it to appreciate it. Uh, Things have changed a little bit. But but what happened in the race? Of course, there were other people running, but it really came down to John Landy and Roger Bannister. There's strategy involved in this, four laps around a track, Years ago, I was a distance runner, never anywhere close to that, uh, but, but running around the track four times. So, so Roger Bannister had made it his plan that on the third time around, he was going to slow down a little bit, save energy for the, for the final lap, the bell lap. And um, unfortunately, as it turned out, Roger, or, or John Landy had, had pushed so hard, he was quite a ways ahead on the third lap, and Bannister realized if he didn't get on it, it didn't matter how fast he ran the last lap, he'd never catch up. So it was an exciting race, and the crowd was involved. And on that final lap, the bell lap, they call that, because they ring a bell when it begins, John Landy's still ahead, but there's a moment in the race when it all changes. Because what happened was, with the roar of the crowd, in a split second, John Landy didn't hear the footfalls of the runner behind him, and it unnerved him, and he turned around. So he broke his concentration, just quick look. And that was the moment when, when, when Bannister moved by him on the other side and won going away at about five yards. And that was the moment when he, when he quit thinking about the race and began to look at a competitor. Uh, what, where was it? Just, just instinct. And both, of course, uh, get across the line, collapse into the arms of other people. It's quite dramatic to watch the end of the, the race as well as the, the conclusion of the actual running. But it highlights the intensity and the effort and the sweat, and the training. And it's a reminder that nobody runs a race like that without some kind of training and effort and discipline. And today's text is about the discipline part. It introduced the theme of a runner, of course, in verse 1, run with endurance. And then you come to this section. Now, i tell you ahead of time, some people find this a bit troubling at, at the initial read. Discipline. God disciplines us. Man, that sounds, you know, like angry. And, and who wants to talk about that? And I, I thought God loved us. And here he's disciplining, disciplining, disciplining. Man, I went to church and talked about discipline. Who wants that? I want to talk about God loving me a lot. And this sounds kind of cranky. Well, I have good news. Um, 
this, this is a challenging text. Uh, fortunately, the discipline involved in text is more than just like, it, it isn't just about like God being angry. That isn't the point. So we'll talk about what it is. And this is really for our good and encouragement. But, but I want to tell you ahead of time, as we step into this, that this is a challenging text. I don't mean hard to understand. But you're going to need to wrap your mind around some things here about the way that God deals with this and his motives. What is he after? What does is, what is God seek from those who, who would call on him and call himself a person of faith? What is God doing? And he's doing something. So we'll talk about that in just a moment here as we, as we head into the text. But I want to pray for us that God would help us in this, in this pursuit today. So join me. Our Father, in this, in this room, we have, we have come from all kinds of different settings and places of understanding of you and even in relationship to you. And you know every one of us. You know right where we are. You know right what we each need to hear from you. And it is our prayer that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God even beyond words that are spoken from me and, and apply the Scripture and draw men and women to yourself. Encourage us. Correct us. Help us. What it is we need from you, O oh, Father, would you give? And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So on your sermon notes, Premier Bulletin, there are a couple of uh, reminders, uh, review places we have been. I encourage you to take the time to read that. And as always, there is a paragraph called Text and Context. I just want to remind all of us in our reading of the Bible, uh, good Bible study methods involve thinking about the context. How does today's portion fit into the bigger text. So we're always asking that, always wanting to practice good Bible study methods, even in our preaching. So text and context, and there are some elements about this. Now, I, I, I want to give a couple preliminary comments before we, be, before we read, which we will a moment in, the, in a moment read the text. Often, people have the idea that when they come to Christ, it is God's job now, having saved you, forgiven you because of Jesus, to, to basically keep you happy. I mean, what's wrong with that? Uh, I like to be happy, and so therefore it's God's job, that's what he's for, right? To, to protect us from all kinds of terrible things that would happen, keep us generally well and healthy, and live a, a pretty good life, and provide for our financial needs, and, and it's kind of like a, you take the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and Walt Disney, bundle them together, and say, that's what God should be to me. He should generally keep me warm, happy, and fed, and, and make my life better. Right? No. Huh. I mean, did that sound bad? Wouldn't we like? Wouldn't we like that? Well, okay. Today's text talks about the purpose of God in in growing us. We often hear in colloquial Christianity from a preacher or a book or some other setting, "God loves me just as I am." Right? Which is true, but incomplete. Okay, there's another sentence that must be added to that to make it biblically true. Yes, God loves you just the way you are, right where you're at. And he loves you too much to leave you there. Okay? You must know that. You must. He loves you right where you're at. And he loves you too much to just leave you there. Just as a parent, that, that'll run through the text, that picture of a parent who sees a, who, whose child uh, desperately needs to learn something to be socially acceptable. I mean, come on, you're going to venture out into the world someday. I don't want you to, I don't want you to fall on your face. I've got to teach you some stuff. A, a good parent would say, I love you right where you're at. But buddy, chew with your mouth shut. Okay? Please, just once. Okay? So that's a, that's a good parent who says, I love you, and I'm here to teach you. It would be irresponsible if I, I'm loving if I just left you. So that runs through the text. Now, the idea of a runner. Now, again, in looking at that one paragraph, good runners undergo rigorous training that involves sweat and pain and coaching from others and self-denial and focused living and even correction. Good runners face all of those things. And listen, God uses all of the things in that list I just gave you to shape your life. Did you know that? And it is for your good and because he loves you. 
That's really what we want to look at in the text today. Well, I want to read Hebrews 12 then. Uh, Our main text, really verses 4 and what follows, or 3 and what follows. But I'm going to start at verse 1 to help us pick up the context. So hear God's word then as we look at it together. Hebrews 12, starting verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, or as we saw last week, the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens or chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed good to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's word. Now, if you look at your sermon notes, you can see where I want to go. Uh, There are three observations I want to make. I put it under headings of, of things I need. I need to know God's purpose. I need to understand God's use. I need to submit myself to God's training program. So those are the three headings. I'm going to approach the text thematically rather than um, start to finish verses 3 through 11. And so I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand the approach I want to take today. So I'm saying, first of all, then, that we need to know God's overall purpose for discipline. That gives a context to us here. So I want to address what discipline is not and then what it is, and then talk about that a bit. So in Scripture, please get this, God's discipline is not about us paying for our sin. You understand this? It's not about us paying for our sin. Like like every time you think something or say something or do something you ought not say or do or think or look at or whatever, God's going to say, well, I'm going to make you pay for that. Could you imagine if that were true? how much paying you'd be doing. That's what I'm after. It would be pretty constant um, because we, well, we we fall short a lot. And if every time we messed up, God says, okay, paying for that one. Oh, man. Well, that violates the gospel, doesn't it? You can never pay for your sin. Christ, Christ paid for our sin once and for all on the cross. So the gospel tells us this. Christ paid for our sin. So when, when God is disciplining us, and we'll define it more in a minute, it's not about us paying for our sin. Or, I suggest, it's not about God being mad at us for messing something up. You did that again? I can't believe it. What kind of a miserable... What, is that the voice of God? Well, no. No. If you know Christ is your Savior, you are a dear child of the Father. So, God's discipline in our life isn't that God's mad at us for messing something up, spilling our, our divine milk or something over dinner. No, no, that isn't it at all. It's not about karma. Uh, people sometimes say that maybe too casually today. Karma, Eastern religions, has no place in the Bible. It's not about that. It's not about uh, just about reaping consequences. Are there consequences? Of course. But that's not what we're talking about really in this context today. God's purpose for this Discipline. So what do we mean by this? Now, the second bullet point. Please, please get your mind around this. The term discipline as used in the text 
refers to the entire scope of training a child. It includes whatever it is, parents and teachers or whoever it is, do to train or correct or cultivate or educate children in order to help them develop and mature as they ought. The, the term uh, paideia, if, if you're into such things, is used nine times in eight verses, either as a noun or a verb, some form of it. And it, uh, paideia, uh, pediatric, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain core terms to these. Um, that's what it means. So when you think about father and son, it's what the term that the writer is using means. It's, he's using an analogy to how God raises us, if you will, and corrects us. So discipline isn't only about, and you're in trouble now, mister. It's that training and coaching and, hey, buddy, when we go out in the real world, we don't do it that way. Or here's things we don't say. Or here are words that are off limits. Or, hey, don't. Or do this, positive. It's getting stars on the little chart. It's, it involves positive as well as negative. It's everything that goes into the training of a child. So when you read this text, you know, it is for discipline that you endure. Don't think of the army right here, like, oh, straighten up, soldier. Uh, that may be part of it, but it isn't the only part. Does this make sense? You got this? So really get that definition down. So I'm saying then, third bullet point, we often think about discipline in the negative sense. It also includes positive elements of sharpening and skill training. It is, yes, indeed, about a trip to the woodshed, but also about a trip to the gym. I thought very carefully about whether to include that term. Because I wondered if anybody today would know what a trip to the woodshed meant. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few. Yes. Uh, for those of you who are younger and have no idea, you get the... It, it, it's what used to happen back in the day when there was a woodshed, when you were in trouble and you were going to have a little meeting with the, 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 the school board, so to speak. That Anyway, when you were going to get a, a swat on the bottom, way there where people, you could scream and nobody would hear you, I think was the idea. <laughs> I don't know. Take them out of the woodshed and, and people think it's some animal hurting. But it, anyway, it meant you were in trouble and it was time, you were done talking. So a trip to the woodshed was just a, a figure of speech, but it was real for many of us of that generation. So the, the idea of discipline in the, in the text, yes, it is. I, I would be wrong if I said it isn't about that. We'll see, we'll see that in a minute or two. There is an element of, of that kind of corrective discipline in the text, but it isn't only that. A trip to the gym where you grow and you sweat and you, 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 you learn. So, so, so giving that kind of a definition changes the way you read it. Now, a couple of things here. Again, I'm not going in textual order. Verse 6 and verse 8 address specifically God's purpose and what he wants for you. Okay? So verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You see this? He chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 8, if you're left without discipline, which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So God's disciplining your life is evidence of his love. And it's a proof that you are his child. It's not a result of his anger. Now, it's a general rule of life. We don't discipline other people's kids. Do we? As much as you would love to walk through Walmart and change that, can you imagine yourself, if you had permission to, change, to discipline everybody's kid, you can walk yourself through Walmart. Get off of there. Stop that right now. Your mother said, no, you can't have that. Quit your whining. You, over the half of it would be training of parents. I think that's the 13th time you said no. Um, I don't know. That's about 12 times too many. There's a variety of things that would happen. But, but we don't discipline other people's kids. We discipline our own. And so God's discipline in our life is proof of his love and that we belong to him. Can you, can you let your soul and your spirit absorb that for a moment? If you didn't belong to him, it'd be just as easy for God to say, fine, ruin your life. Merry Christmas. Off you go. No, but because he loves you, there's going to be this process of training and correcting and disciplining and educating that God does is a gift. No, really, because I love you. Parents proverbially down through the ages have said to their children in moments of discipline, this is going to hurt me. Uh, yeah, a lot more than it hurts you. 
And it sounds really hollow as a child. But then become a parent, and you know it's true. Man, I don't want it. Oh. I don't want to deal with this, but I must. You know, good parents know what that's like. To say, oh, I could ignore it. I could ignore it again. Oh, to the destruction of my child. Listen, we must talk about this or we're done talking. Now, now it's time for, well, I'm still an old school guy. Uh, the, it, we're, anyway, the Board of Correction, we're going to deal with this. No, this, you, you absolutely cannot. You must not do this. You must not do this. You must know how much this is bad. This will hurt you. God's discipline in our life is evidence of his love. Now, again, verses 10 and 11, take it uh, again. Uh, they disciplined us. Our parents disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So again, God's discipline is for our good, your good, for your growth and holiness. Just as I say here, all good parents must discipline their kids. And I would be remiss if I didn't call that out. This text assumes that parents know what we're talking about. It assumes that good parents are training their children, not just getting them in trouble. That's not about just yelling at them. That isn't the point. In fact, I think maybe the more you yell, maybe some other areas need to work on a little more. Um, we can yell too much. Um, but good parents figure out their kids, their children, and discipline them. That's true in all generations and all times and places, though it's done different. But God's purpose in discipline then, we'll say this, it's for your good. It's because he loves you, because you belong to him. So I want to go then to the next section, needing to understand God's use of discipline. And here I would point you back to verse 3, and some of these then in more uh, textual order. God's use of discipline, having established the purpose then. In verse 3, we read, Consider him, this is Jesus now, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that's the target for the learning specified in verse 3, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I represented this on your study notes by saying we are being trained. This is one of the uses we're being trained to keep running when we're weary or when facing hostility for our faith. And Christ is our example in this because we often get weary. And I, I hope I don't communicate poorly here in, in the way that I phrase this. God trains us to toughen up a bit. Does that communicate? Does, is, that, is that okay to say? Because oh, we often think, well, shouldn't we be tender people? Well, tender-hearted, yes. Tender-hearted. But, but God disciplines us to toughen up a bit when it comes to living life because life itself is exacting and difficult and hard, you may have noticed. So training us to toughen up a bit, maybe whine a little bit less, adjust your expectations that it's going to be fun all the time. God trains us to toughen up a bit. Well, if I, if I may now, a couple of things on this as we think about it together. We live in a very fragile world, don't we? People seem all around us to be, well, not toughened up a bit. A very easily offended world. We live in an offended time, an offended culture. And I, I do understand there are things to be offended about, and there is a time for offense. But it seems to me we live in a culture where people just walk around offended. Everything's offensive. You're offensive, frankly. Look at you. I don't know. You, 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 can, you understand my point. I'm offensive. We're all offensive because you, you, you what? You looked at me that way or wore that or didn't this or I don't know what. You're probably offensive to somebody just because you exist. And sometimes Christians can absorb the same thing. Easily offended. Too easily offended. That's I, I think, is what we're talking about. You're getting weary, you're faint-hearted and you're, as you walk this road of life. And so God brings discipline to toughen us up a bit, to teach us to keep running. Uh, thinking about this a bit this week, this last Monday, uh, several of us, six of us, climbed Mount St. Helens. It's a climb, it's not just a hike. Um, it's not that bad. There's a mountain, you just walk up. 
you start at about 4,000 feet and you go to 8,300. It's really not that bad. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. Uh, six of us made it to the top, and we have a nice picture of us all smiling at the edge of the crater. But along the way, in addition to the challenges of the trail, first part, pretty simple, second part, moderate, third part, oh, buddy, um, going up. Well, it, it, this trip for, uh, for us, I'm not going to spell out who, involves vomiting, <laughs> severe muscle cramps, uh, sand and grit in your food and in your mouth because the wind's blowing, being too cold because the air is blowing off the snow in the crater, too hot on the way back down, running out of water. One of the folks or the guys in the, in the group lost some toenails as a result of the hike, right? Um, there's a whole number of things. Times you feel like quitting. Uh, you're at some points climbing over boulders or through sand. Um, one of those individuals who I won't sp spell out said something about this mountain humbled me. My best day here, my worst day. My point is, somewhere along the way here, every one of us was, the thought crossed our mind to say, okay, I, there's a nice rock. I could just sit on that. They'll pick me up on the way back now. <laughs> right? And we would have. And there's a time for that. There is. There's a time to say enough. But there's also a time to say, hey, Tiger, get up. Yeah, finish what you're doing there, by the way. Wipe your mouth and let's go. <laughs> Serious. Let's go. Get up. You want to get to the top? Come on. Um, call in somebody's strength that they don't have and saying, let's go. There's a time for this. Okay? Cheering. Cheering somebody on. We'll see this in next week's text. Verse 12, you can glance ahead, cheat a little bit. Yeah, no, we, we need each other. I'm saying this, to get to the top like that, that it, it, it'll toughen you up a little bit. It'll, it'll make you keep going when you, when you don't really feel like it. Somebody, there's a time, you know this, there's a time in your life when you need a friend who says, oh, that's so terrible. Let me give you a hug, cup of tea, wrap a blanket around you. I'm so sorry. And there are times when God does that for us, when his, 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 his care and his tenderness is so real. We also need friends who say, that's really hard. Now quit whining. <laughs> and if you don't have any friends like that, that you give them permission to speak to you, you're, you're missing a key ingredient in life. All you're going to be is, is coddled. There's a book out I haven't read yet, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's on my read list. Right. You understand what I mean by that. If everybody just gives you a hug and nobody ever gives you, you know, a swift, well, prod to say, let's go. Quit your sniveling. Knock it off. I know it's tough, but quit whining. If nobody ever says that, uh, well, I think we're the, the worst for it. And I think God does this too. There's a time for the comfort of his love. And there's a time for the prodding of his spirit that says, hey, buddy, you think this is hard? Jesus went to the cross. How are you doing? So, we're being trained to keep running when we're weary or when facing hostility for our faith. Christ, our example. Second, verse 4. Verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And I represented that this way. We're being trained to aggressively fight against sin in our lives. The battle against sin is tiring. Anybody get an amen out of that? Well, it is. The struggle against sin is tiring. Every one of us knows something about that. Saying no to the wrong and saying yes to the right again and again and again when the, the call in the other direction is so loud. You can about feel it sometimes. I know the fighting against sin, going too far, heading the wrong direction. We do get weary. And as we have seen in the text, I give you chapter 3, verse 13, we do need to encourage each other to endure, encourage one another today, who will still call today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3, verse 13. We need, to be, we, need to, we need to be trained to fight against sin. That's verse 4. And you struggle against sin. You, have, have, you, have, you, have you shed your blood yet here? I know it's hard. Christ shed his blood in his battle 
uh, for sin, against sin on our behalf. And the writer says that to his folks here. Hey, how, how hard has it been for you? Now, thirdly then, looking at verse 5 and into verses 6 and 7, he says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So I, I, I note this under my third bullet point here. We must learn not to take lightly God's discipline. That is to ignore it or to complain against it or to actively resist God's work. Take lightly. Don't take lightly the discipline. Don't ignore it. Don't complain against it. Or don't actively resist God's work. Now, on this, understanding the use of God's discipline, as you see on my next section here, I want to make a shift. Let me explain. Uh, in, in theological categories, uh, biblical theology tends to mean focusing on the immediate text in front of you and its meaning and its addressing a particular topic, whereas systematic theology would involve thinking about that topic all the way through Scripture. So biblical theology, more dealing with that text, systematic, dealing with that topic more broadly. So I'm going to step for a moment from biblical theology, this text, to a very small step into systematic theology. All right? Because I think on this topic of God's training or discipline, I think this would be helpful to us. So some other texts I want to comment on, and I'm going to turn to these and would invite you to do the same if you would like. So three other statements then represented in other scriptures about God's use of discipline. So the first one of these, some discipline is in fact corrective. And I take you here to the story of King David uh, who sinned egregiously, as you know, in a manner unbecoming a child of God and certainly a king of Israel, God's anointed. And in, in Psalm 51, you find David's prayer of repentance, it would appear. And in Psalm 32, it would appear that this is representing the process of God's work in David's heart before he got to the place of repentance. Okay? So Psalm 32, then, begins like this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's his opening statement, and now his personal testimony. Okay? He says, for, for when I kept silent. Now, if you have a New American Standard you know that there is an italicized phrase there that the translators thought best represented the text, and I agree with them. Specifically, when I kept silent about my sin. That's what the context would indicate, and that's what's supplied in, I think, the NAS. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Isn't that interesting? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Okay, so verse 4 then is describing the corrective hand of God. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Now, think with me. Was that pleasant for David or not? The answer is no. It was not pleasant. Was it good for David? The answer is yes. This was God pressing his hand on David to bring him to the point of repentance. Certainly Nathan the prophet is going to come knocking on his door soon. But David describes day and night the hand of God pressing on his spirit. God loving David enough to say, Oh, David, you did wrong. You did wrong. You did wrong. C.S. Lewis talks about God whispering to us in our pleasures, shouting to us in our pain. 
I've left out a part of that phrase. It's from the, the book, The Problem of Pain. God, but th- those two parts, I recall, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain, he says, is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. Certainly so, the child of God. Pain is his megaphone. So then, verse 5, David comes to that moment. Psalm 51, I would suggest, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Can you imagine? That's a hallelujah. You forgave me. David says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave me. God forgave me. Oh, my goodness sakes. God forgave me. It's a moment to shout and celebrate. Verse 4 leads to it. Day and night, your hand pressed heavy upon me for my good. So I'm saying some discipline is corrective. I want to go to 2 Corinthians 12, all the way back the other way. Come with me if you would. 2 Corinthians 12 is an interesting text. Perhaps should, should give you some things to think about. Some discipline is corrective. Some discipline is preventative. Preventative. So, First, or 2 Corinthians 12 begins with Paul talking about the spiritual privileges God had given him, specifically revelation. Um, I like to, to say that God gave the Apostle Paul the privilege of sticking his head up through one of the manhole covers in heaven and looking around for 30 seconds. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek, you understand, but God let him look in and see things he was not allowed to talk about, like smell the smell of heaven and look around and say, yep. I want to go here. This will work. Uh-huh. And then pop your head back down and back to work. Knock it off now. Back to work. I could show you sometime why I believe that, but that's kind of the idea. Gave him a chance. So then in verse 7, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Isn't that interesting? To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me or to buffet me. Again, repeated, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we're not told what the thorn in the flesh was, but apparently it was something unpleasant that, that Paul, if he could have, would have gotten rid of. In fact, he prays about it three times. God, would you remove this? Fix this. And God says, no. And Paul prays again and says, God, would you remove this? Would you? Paul knew, pray again. He did, he prayed again. And God said, no, pleaded. He says, I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, this thorn in the flesh. Prayed three times. And then God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, not my strengths, my accomplishments. I'll boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am, look at this, I'm content. I'm at peace with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's a a stunning paragraph. Now, when Paul prayed three times, it doesn't say four times, six times, 28 times, apparently he stopped praying that prayer at this point. I I realize that in the study of prayer, we often talk about prevailing prayer, continuing at it for years upon years. In this case, it would seem that God arrested that and said, okay, Paul, stop. And we're not told that specifically, but after the third time, God says, my grace is going to be enough. I think, I think most parents have had the experience of saying to a child, if not, write this down, okay? No, and don't ask me again. <laughs> Does that sound harsh? Maybe. But there's a, a parent shouldn't probably say that all the time. But there are moments when it's the right thing to say. Because perhaps from a child, your incessant asking for the same thing again and again, knowing that I'm not going to give it to you, is, is not going to work. And you are starting to drive me nuts. 
so do not ask me for that again. I will not change my answer, and if I do, I will let you know. So I don't want to hear that again. And that's a point of, shall I say it, discipline that is good and right. And as much as I say to all of us, I would never want to hinder us praying, um, there are fences or limits that God has placed on every single person in this room. You may recognize them as such and you may not. There are physical limitations that we face and we, we chafe against aging, height, strength, mental capacity. Some things you're good at, some things you're not. Some things, no matter how hard you work, you'll never be good at it. Sorry, did I just pop your bubble? It's reality. I'm just telling you the truth. Okay, take a class. You're going to hate it. Just certain ways God's wired us. And we can chafe against these things, fences or limits or boundaries. Some of those things sometimes are imposed by others. Sometimes the country we're living in, sometimes by the job we're in. If you don't want that, then you're going to not have a job. And it's what you get to deal with. Chafe against it all you like, it's what you got. The marriage you may or may not be in. The place in life you find yourself. There are limits and and boundaries. And sometimes I know, yes, I I get the idea of of requesting change, all of that. But, but, but I don't want to miss the, the repetition in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. God was doing something here with Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. Now, you and I don't have that kind of an insight into what God is doing. But let me, let me give you an example of this. How many times do people read information on, let's just say, the publisher's clearinghouse and say, good night, they're giving away $20.5 million dollars. Do you know what a wonderful steward I would be of $20.5 million? I would be the most generous, Jesus-loving, mission-oriented person. In fact, instead of 10%, I'll give 20. I will only keep $16 million for myself. Think of how generous that is. I'll give away the first four. It would be as though God would say, Hey, friend, I know what you'd be like with 12 or 20 or $1 million. You think you'd be all generous. You'd be all generous throwing 20s out your Maserati window. Yes, I know what you would become, and I am unlikely to let you have that. And it isn't just about money. How many other things are there that we'd say, but God, I would handle that so well. And how many times, really, if God were to open the door of heaven and say, hey, buddy, or hey, sister, not so much. You'd never be able to live with yourself if I gave you that. So in my wisdom, I'm going to say no. Because I love you. No. Now, you may be thinking of specifics. I hope you are. But I'm saying this. God's discipline sometimes is corrective. Sometimes it's preventative, preventing Maybe pride, arrogance in this case. And then third, and I'll, I won't turn to the story of Job, educational. That would be the story of Job, educational. I mean, Job hadn't sinned. The story of Job and the struggles he went through, it wasn't because Job was a bad guy. He was a good guy. He really was. Now, he sinned along the way, sure. But the summary in chapter 42, Job says, um, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, now I see you. Now my eye sees you. I heard things about you, God, but now I know them personally. There was an educational aspect to this. Corrective, preventative, educational. Okay, come back to chapter 12, just for another moment or two, and then I'm done. So God's purpose and discipline for our good, that we can share in the holiness, become more like Christ, share in Christ's holiness. I need to understand God's use. Yes, keep running, stamina, toughen up a bit, fight against sin. Don't take lightly, don't chafe against And that would lead me to my third element that I think just runs through this whole text. I need to submit myself to God's training program. To submit myself means to be at peace with the limitations that God places in your life. To submit myself to God's training program. Can I ask how you're doing with that? How how is it for you? with the work of God in your life. Maybe you know right where there are stresses and right where there's difficulty, right where God is shaping your character or pressing you to endure. 
And I understand we're Americans, so we you know try to fix our, we try to change our, our circumstances. I understand the point of that, but I also know that there are things that you can't change, or not very easily, or you try to change, and God says no. So what do you do with those? You just just complain all the time against God. Well, verse five: Do not regard lightly. We've commented on this. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Ignore it. Complain against it. Actively resist. Don't be weary when you're reproved by him, corrected, steered, trained. Don't be weary. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. Interestingly, um, there is a discussion on the, for those who translate the text because the term endure could also be translated as a command rather than indicative. If you know grammar, you know what I just said. Uh, It could be translated, endure discipline. Endure discipline. Some texts or translations do give it that. Endure discipline, rather than it's for discipline that you endure. Um, So that's, that's, that's an interesting call. It seems like it would fit with the emphasis in the book. Endure. Endure God's discipline. There's a call to endurance that's familiar to the reader of Hebrews. Verse 9, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And I think to be subject to, please, you think about this deeply, please. To, if, I sub, if I submit myself to the hand of God, it means that I'm not complaining against Him all the time. It means I'm learning to live at peace with the limitations God has placed on my life. Maybe you need to think about that. To, to be at peace with the limitations God has given you rather than just hating it all the time. Lord, if, if this is your hand, if this is your plan for me, I receive this from your hand. First hmm. Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I want to tell you one little story, a couple of comments and I'm done. Uh, early on, in ministry, I remember I, vividly, I was 17, and I had my first dose of this. I, at 17, I was getting my first chances to step up front. It was way uncomfortable. That's not the way I was raised. I never aspired to anything that would involve standing in front of people, ever. If you'd have asked me, even as a high school student, if I would ever do that, it would have been not a chance in the world. But other circumstances and so on. So I'm 17. It's back in the day when to stand in front of a church meant you wore a full suit. I think I had a, a vest on as well. Um, it's kind of what you did. And so that was me. And I'm not good at this. I'm just figuring it out. I'm stumbling through stuff. Well, one day it's 90, like 95 degrees. It was really blistering hot in this little church and there's no AC. And, and I made a terrible mistake as a kid. I, I, I took my suit coat off. And I laid it on the, on the pew. And I went up and I led in prayer. And most people didn't care. But one person did. And after church, he pulled me aside to let me know how inappropriate it was, how disrespectful I had been to God and his people by taking my suit coat off and praying. After all, if you were meeting with the president, you would not have taken your suit coat off. You'd have shown respect for the office. How much more should you have done this in the presence of God? So wear your coat. <clears throat> Sweat a little bit. Sorry. <clears throat> what is the problem? <clears throat> and he let me know I had done it wrong. I had a wrestling match that afternoon with God. <clears throat> because I looked at this and I thought, you know what? Who, I mean, come on. Who needs this? I mean, what right did he have? Kind of nonsense. You know, I, I, I don't need somebody chewing on me. I'm going to get another job. Anything, anything. Got a job where they're going to just chew on you for something stupid. So I, I, had to, I had to work that through my own heart. Conversation with the guy who was mentoring me toward ministry. <clears throat> Words of wisdom. Yes, he agreed. Yeah, that shouldn't have happened. And here's the deal in context. And he does that. Um, but he also said, you're right to think that if you walk this road of ministry, that's what you're going to get, because you will. So don't walk that road if you can't handle it. How about that for encouragement? 
Forty some years later, I can tell you, yeah, that's that's probably true. Uh, not infrequently, there's somebody somewhere in this world who will take a bite of you, out of you. Little puppy dog, usually, usually not a great Dane. Usually, a little puppy dog just biting your ankles again and again and again. And there's that thing that says, you know what, Lord, will I submit myself willingly to that, or will I say, you know, I deserve better? Is that it? You deserve what now? It, 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 many of us live in places where people take bites. And sometimes, you know, you end up needing to say, Lord, here I am. It's like David when he was fleeing from Absalom and um, Shimei. You remember that story? Second Samuel, I think. Shimei throwing rocks and yelling at him. One of the guys with David says, should I go over and take off his head? David could have said, sure. <laughs> he didn't. He said, if the Lord has told him to curse me today, this is from the hand of God. I'll receive it. Imagine. Discipline. God's discipline. God's discipline. So I'm saying here, under the part called responding to God's word, God may be disciplining us to turn us from sin to bring repentance. Indeed. And you need to think about this. God may be training us in holiness to better conform us to Christ as you learn patience and endurance. God may be building stamina in us to make us more usable to him, to teach you how to run the race and not quit. God could be calling you to himself, bringing you to saving faith in Christ. That could be what God's doing. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, God may be, as one has called him, the hound of heaven, pursuing you to bring you to the place where you say, indeed, I need Jesus. But which of those it is for you, I don't know. But I know God is good in his purposes. And I want to pray for you that God will help you to know which of these might be at work in your life. Would you stand with me as we do that? Father, thank you so much for your people. We are all on this road of life together. And at the same time as we're together, we're at different spots. You're doing different things in our own hearts, bringing correction and training and help. And, oh, Father, we just trust you today. We do. Thank you for loving us enough to do your deep work in us, humbling us and turning us and shaping our character. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. We are so slow to get it so many times. Thank you for your patience. Most of all, thank you for Jesus who died on the cross in our place, paid a price for our sin, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, coming again someday, hopefully, very, very soon. And Father, until that day, give us stamina, give us hope. Thank you for your disciplining hand. But you'll love us like that. In Jesus' great name, amen. amen.